turn to Isaiah 55, and Rebecca's going to read a portion of that text for us as we dive back in. This is Isaiah 55, 6 to 13. Seek God while he is here to be found. Pray to him while he's close at hand. Let the wicked abandon their way of life and the evil their way of thinking. Let them come back to God who is merciful. Come back to our God who is lavish with forgiveness. I don't think the way you think. The way you work isn't the way I work, says the Lord. For as the sky soars high above earth, so the way I work surpasses the way you work, and the way I think is beyond the way you think. Just as rain and snow descend from the skies and don't go back until they've watered the earth, doing their work of making things grow and blossom, producing seed for farmers and food for the hungry, so will the words that come out of my mouth not go back empty-handed. They'll do the work I sent them to do. They'll complete the assignment I gave them. So you'll go out in joy. You'll be led into a whole and complete life. The mountains and hills will lead the parade bursting with song. All the trees of the forest will join the procession, exuberant with applause. Wow, what a picture. No more thistles, but evergreen cypress. No more thorn bushes, but fragrant myrtle. Monuments to me, to God. Living and lasting evidence of God. Thanks, Rebecca. You'll go out in joy, and you'll be led into a whole and complete life. You know, the prophet Isaiah spoke these words while the people were still in exile. Some listened with longing for a return to what they had known, what they experienced. Others listened with a longing that they could only picture from the community's collective memories. All of them waiting in anticipation for the voice of life, the creator word to do the work, to complete the assignment of making things grow and blossom, to flourish. Await, says John the Beloved, that Lily read for us earlier, that is over at the arrival of Jesus, when the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. The hope of a need met, a glaring lack, that disquieting void we feel when an unsatisfied capacity of flourishing, when we, when we feel like, uh, know that we have the ability to flourish but feel like we can't, corresponds, comes together with an unrealized condition, a life free and yet at the same time in exile, but now contented in hope's arrival. What was deficient became sufficient in the life and light of a new day. What came into existence, says John, was life, and the life was the light to live by. Whoever believed he was who he claimed to be and would do what he said he would do, he made to be their true selves, their child of God's selves. Able, as it were, to enter, experience the kingdom of God amid everyday living. The kingdom of God, as you remember, is in the midst of us. As we breathe earlier, it's within our grasp. Through the light life, the life light of Jesus, life in, through, and for Jesus' life, which is the light by which we navigate our living. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. The question of our faith family has been, of our scriptures is, what is required to live in this life light? This is the question that our Bible asks. This is the question that our religion asks, our faith asks, our faith in Jesus asks. What is required of us to be our true child of God's selves, sharing in and displaying His glory forever? Life, as we've learned over the last several, several weeks and months as a faith family, is relational. 
Life isn't just an idea. Life isn't experienced in thought or, or even in, in, in right ideas or, or right um, thinking. Life is actually experienced in relationship. We exist in relationship, a series of processes, interactions, collisions with others, including the other, through which we manifest and experience life whole and holy or something less. Believing this, women and men of faith throughout the centuries have organized their individual lives around communities committed to rightly relating to life himself. Communities committed to rightly relating to life himself with purpose and eternity. These communities provide structure to faith, often literally, in the form of temples or synagogues, cathedrals, chapels, or any array of building type we might call church, right? I mean, isn't that what church is to some extent? The physical form of something that is actually true, a body held together, a people brought together in order to walk out, live out what is required to be our true child of God's selves, to share in and display His glory. The physical structures and all that takes place in and through these structures become the centering object through which the interactions that make life flow in and out. Right? And here's, here's a fun little clip, clip, clip art to demonstrate this thought, right? Ha-ha, yay. If you've been around Christ City for a while, you've, we've talked about these things before, about how we've kind of learned in our culture and context, most of us have grown up in some sort of way, where what centers our life are the activities that take place in this community, which is meant to help us live rightly, relate rightly to life. And so what happens is life kind of takes place out and around what we call church, whether physically or, or even communally, relationally. And then we come out of those things in life, at least for a little bit, in different times, in different ways, into different activities. We step out of where life actually is made, because life is made in relationship, experienced in relationship, in the collisions and context of daily interactions. And we move into what we call church, right? Like in some sort of way, this is probably somewhat how all of our stories have been told in some way or another. That church is something we come to, something that church is something we go to, church is something that anchors our life so that we can come in, we can come and anchor ourselves in the Lord and then go back out into our everyday roles and relationships. We even talk about it that way some, right? But the overwhelming majority of life, the interactions and collisions occur outside of church, right? That's what the, the picture shows at least, right? In our marriages, in our families, our workplaces, our schools, our activities and our passions, our friends and our community, that's where life really happens, outside of the church structured. And yet, it's the church structured that people of faith tend to follow, isn't it? I mean, if we're honest, they, it's the church structured that we order our lives around, our flow, our rhythms, and our activities. So prevalent was this centering of church that for generations, and at least in the West and in Europe especially, villages, towns, and even neighborhoods in large cities were built up around church buildings, whether the church was in the center and the, and the community was built up around it, or the church sat on a hill just above the city to overlook it, there was always a point where the people in, the, in their normal workplaces could look and see the church. Church was a center of life. A physical building was a, as a representation of, our, of a, what orients and orders our lives. That's not all a bad thing, right? Still today, I would argue that most of us, especially in our place, at least in the, the capital of the, the Bible Belt, right, organize their lives around the activities and ambitions of a church. 
And while not inherently wrong, what, what's wrong about trying to walk through life in a way that with other people who are helping us walk out our faith? There's nothing wrong with that, right? While not inherently wrong or unavoidable, if you're walking with people, at some level you have to have structure and organization, right? That's normal. You can't, it's not just kind of willy-nilly. We need some ways to help connect with one another, some consistency in the things that we do. There are certain things that we can do that are better than others, all that kind of stuff, right? Nor is it even at times unnecessary or unhelpful. I mean, we can all probably tell stories, in our, or a lot of us I know can tell stories in our own lives of where the kind of structured church, the church-centered life, like we needed that at a certain moment in our life, a certain stage in our life, in our faith. Maybe it was at the beginning of our faith when we lacked faith. Maybe it was in the middle of something where we felt completely disconnected and disattached and floating off and we needed something physically to be able to be seen to organize and orient our lives. But perhaps our pattern of orbiting contributes also a little bit to our ever so slightly being off the compressed path at times. Now I need you to hear this. Being a part of the body of Christ, connected, contributing, and moving through life with others following Jesus together is a God-designed necessity. Whether in the assumed language of Jesus, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, unless we're a part of community and life, physical life and life with God, we cannot enter the kingdom of God, or as vine and branches and flock metaphors, as he said in John chapter 10, the sheep hear my voice. They come after this voice. They follow my voice. The sheep that are mine and the sheep that aren't yet mine that I'm trying to bring to you. There's one flock. There's a togetherness of following one shepherd. Or in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. Not the branch. You're not one branch. You're the branches. There's, there's a whole bunch of us, a collective of us. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Or, probably more familiar to us, the Apostle Paul's body language. Being members one of another with Jesus as our head. As he says to the Romans, For as in one body we have many parts, and the parts don't all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And he, Jesus, in, or Paul says in Ephesians, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip the saints the body for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. A faithful and faith-filled life brings us together as the gathered, the ecclesia, the church, now and forever. Our scriptures are clear about that. But there is a slight but significant shift in our lives when they're centered on the structures of a community rather than the person who constructs our life, who both forms and is the form, the maturation of our community. Because what did Paul say? What does Paul say our immaturation? Is our immaturation anything that can be expressed in a building form? Our maturation is a fullness into Christ, something that's beyond whatever we can be bound in any sort of idea that we can even contain. And so... This is what we've said as a faith family, is how we try to orient and operate as a faith family. And I know this may sound strange to some, but I know a lot of you, and most of you have been a part of Christ City for a while, so this doesn't sound new. But as a faith family, our desire is not to be the center of your life, but to help you live centered on Jesus and in Jesus. 
That doesn't put us in contrast with everything else outside of this place, but that's our goal. That's, this is how we think through our life together. We need the community, one another. Others following Jesus with us and the structured ways of being together. We need those things. But in truth and in the end, in the fullness of maturation, we follow Jesus in mutual submission one to another out of reverence of Jesus in all the interactions that make life. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, husbands, Christ, the church's body, children's parents, bond servants, employees, and earthly masters, employers. The activities of the community, the commune, our spiritual friendships, our gospel communities, our faith practices, even our collective worship, are meant to help us get into the flow of life from in and to Jesus, to draw us into our lives in Jesus and draw others into life with him alongside of us. For our lives to actually get into the flow of the life that we were made for in God. To follow him together. Not just follow something centered that we make, right? Like the alreadyness of the Beatitudes, the already blessedness of the Beatitudes. Sometimes what centers our living, the thing we make life... The thing which we make life work around. The thing that we make life work around. Which again, there's, it says a lot to somebody to say they make their life work around church, right? What does it say? It says they long for some sort of right relating with God and others, right? It says a lot to us that we would give our time and energy and resources to a people to do that, right? But sometimes the thing which we make life around needs a recalibration to the reality of the kingdom. Because remember what the prophet said. I don't think the way you think. The way you work isn't the way I work, says the Lord. For as the sky soars high above the earth, so the way I work surpasses the way you work. And the way I think is beyond the way you think. So maybe, just maybe, there is more to the world than our little church-centered lives allow us to see. A whole complete life out there. Because what did, the, what did the, the prophet say? So you'll go out in joy, and you'll be led into a whole and complete life. A life in which the mountains and the hills, all of creation lead the parade, bursting with song. All the trees of the forest will join in the procession, exuberant with applause. And as Rebecca threw in there, what a vision and a picture, right? But remember, we've talked about it. Didn't we just say just a minute ago, this picture's arrived. What the prophet longed for, John the Apostle saw. What the prophet spoke might be, hoped to be, would be, with conviction. John got to see in flesh and blood. Moving throughout the neighborhood. Graciousness and glory, which we live off of its bounty still today. So it's not that we're entirely missing the point and purpose when we think about church and orient our life around church. But perhaps we're overlooking enough to keep us from living wholly free, completely free, entirely free in our lives, in the life light. Free in our bound relationships and responsibilities. But like Isaiah, maybe there's a better picture that'll help us understand what kind of we're talking about. Uh, maybe a physical picture 
rather than a word picture, would help us see what we're trying to get into these couple weeks before we enter Advent. Prophets came in a variety of forms. Do you know that? When we think about prophets in the Bible, we tend to think about like somebody maybe like John the Baptist, right? Kind of dressed like in, in some sort of camel fur, standing on the street corner, yelling at people, screaming at people. Maybe that's not how you picture it, but that's how I picture almost all the prophets. Or I picture them like street, streetwalk evangelists today, maybe, right? A little bit. Like there's some sort of like proclamation, and it seems to always be a little scary and intimidating, right? A little bit, generally speaking, right? But prophets came in all shapes and sizes in, in our scriptures. Some of them were shepherds. Some of them were thinkers. Some of them were priests. Most of them actually weren't. Most of them were, worked, were kind of outside of it. They were in like the governmental system of, of the day and all that kind of stuff. And some of the prophets used words like Isaiah to call us out of darkened ways back into the lifelight, to give us pictures of what was going on inside of us that we needed to repent of and turn from, and to give us pictures of what God was at work doing, to call us into, to live into them. But there's also prophets like Jeremiah, for example, who use theatrical performances to awaken our awareness. If you read the book of Jeremiah, God tells Jeremiah to basically perform lots of theatrical things, to cook stuff, to sleep on stuff, to lay on stuff, to not wear clothes, like all kinds of things to get people's attention. He used theatrical performances to awaken us to the truth of what God was doing, what was going on in us, and invite us into what God had for us. And there's some like Hosea, whose whole life was a prophetic parable, right? But there's also, some prophets also use paint. Do we have any art majors among us? Anybody major in art? Great, so you don't get to, have a, you don't get to correct me until afterwards, okay? Or if, if there's something good, you can say an amen. That would be helpful. All right, how about anybody that took art appreciation class in college? Yeah, I, I did that. Anybody remember anything from art appreciation class in college? No, I don't either. I wish I'd paid more attention. But either way, whatever's true, <laughs> we, we, we know at least one person like, knows what this painting is, but I'm pretty sure all of us know what this painting is. Are you familiar with this painting? Yeah, yeah Vincent Van Gogh, Starry Night. Okay, like, yeah, Cohen's got it on like, his Nintendo like, like, case, right? So like, this is, it's a pretty famous painting. It's one of the most reproduced in the works of art in history. And while it seems to catch a, a starry night in, in Arles, France, I'm, I'm, mispr- I'm uh, butchering Arles, France. I got it right? Sweet. Thanks, Dan. All right. Arles, France. <laughs> like, you can tell me if I, if I am butchering it. Um, if I told you there is more to this prophetic image than a quiet evening, what if I told you there was more to this picture than just a pretty picture that's kind of been known and, and popularized? So let me ask you this. What captures your attention about the picture? First, what's your first impression? What's the first thing your, your mind's drawn to? What? The sky? Great. The sky captures your picture. There's not, there's not a wrong answer. I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't remember anything from our appreciation, so like you can't fail this, this little quiz. The main thing in the sky. Okay, the, 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 the fire thing. The, uh, um, we'll talk, we'll, that's good. We'll talk about that. It's actually a cypress tree. Cypress tree in the front. The movement of the painting, that's right. So maybe the movement that kind of goes throughout the whole painting, right? Does it feel like the painting's alive a little bit, the way it's moved, the way it's painted together? The swirling lines and swishing strokes make everything, even the homes down in the village, right? Even the homes feel alive. 
Like Van Gogh painted things that it, they didn't just they weren't just flat, right? There was a vividness to them. And the vividness wasn't like in the detail, the vividness was in the lines. These wavy lifelines that he used in almost all of his all of his artwork. It seems like the stars, the heavens, the hills, the trees, the buildings are all moving and living in some sort of way, right? It's probably why like, they, they were able to take Van Gogh and make like a 3D exhibit of Van Gogh's stuff, right? Because everything kind of moves and feels like it's moving and alive. Is there a particular star that catches your eye? Is there one that stands out different than the others? Yeah, the brighter one, the one that's white, right? There's a star rising and pronounced. It's off-center to the left, kind of by the big, wavy, weird things, right? The cypress trees. It's wider than the others and appears to be riding the light pulsating from the mountains, the kind of waves that are coming up from the mountains, that first little yellow there that mirrors them. It feels like that light is like riding on them, right? That star's kind of riding and moving, moving on the sound of the waves. A light that brings our attention to the wind in the heavens, right? From that like star, we kind of move into, okay, now we see there's kind of a swirling motion, right? There, it draws, the star draws our attention to, to the winds in the heavens swirling. And the swirling then brings us to the brightest and most eye-catching thing of the painting, right? Where is your eye naturally drawn in the painting? Up and to the right. Yep. To, to the moon. That is a crescent moon. You see the crescent moon in it, but... At the same time, it's not a crescent moon, really, right? There's something more to it. It's shining a lot brighter than the moon. There's, there's something wholly more than just the moon's reflection in it, right? It almost seems like there's a sun behind the moon, like the sun's behind the moon, doesn't it? Like, it's usually when you see a crescent moon drawn in the, in the sky, it's dark on the other side of it because the moon's pronounced. But there's something different about this painting. It gives off a life more like the sun itself. So the entire heavens seem to be pulsating with life, right? Like, um, this is what draws our attention first. And the brush strokes of the other objects seem to kind of reverberate with the life of the heavens. If, you, if your eye is kind of drawn to the top first and you make your way down, the same kind of movement in life moves down into the village, right? From the heavens down into the earth. Well, at least for most of the objects. Do you notice any particular object that stands out as a bit unique and characteristic to the other objects? The church. Maybe the church in the center of the painting. You see the church in the center of the painting? The steepled building? Now, I actually got to, to, to take a train through Arles in the south of France um, on, once on a ride from Marseille to Montpellier. Um, it's a beautiful countryside. South of France is, it has a reputation that it's, that's, and that it's worthy of, very much so. But you know what's not in view on that train ride as I go, you go through Arles? A steeple. There's no steeple in Arles. That's because the church buildings in Arles are stone cathedrals. France is predominantly Catholic. In fact, what you see in the countryside of Arles is the Cathedral of St. Trophimine, which you can see right here. This is what you see. Now go back to the painting. So where does Van Gogh get his wooden white steepled and still no wavy life-lined church building at the center of his painting. If a cathedral is what's in the center of the city, stone, big building that you can't miss, why does he have a wooden white steepled church? 
Well, did you know that Van Gogh grew up in a family of Dutch Reformed pastors? And that he actually trained with full expectation from a child all the way, all the way to, um, to adulthood to enter the pastorate. That was his calling, his passion, his desire. That's right. Van Gogh grew up with the expectation that he was made to serve the church and gave his life to pursue the thing he thought he was made for. He thought, I'm called to serve the church, and I'm giving my life to the thing that I'm called to. Perhaps because he struggled with mental illness, probably a manic disorder of some sort, he was not permitted to do the thing he committed his life to doing. He was not permitted to pastor. But if he couldn't pastor in the church, he'd at least go help start churches, or so he thought. So after not becoming what he thought he was meant to become in the church, Van Gogh became a missionary to the mining communities in Belgium, doing the work of the church and helping to draw people into the church. If he couldn't be a formal pastor, he'd nonetheless be a proclaimer of Jesus to a population at the time that much of society had pushed to the edges, the miners specifically. But after a year or so, the church mission agency thought Van Gogh's identification with the poor was a little too familiar. He'd done the unthinkable, and he moved into the miners' neighborhood, the miners' camps. Van Gogh had taken up residence in a style of life among those whom he ministered. And once more, he was rejected by the thing he felt had called his life. The thing which he had centered his life and his identity on, church. Again, he thought he was going to be a pastor in the church. If he couldn't be a pastor in the church, well, then he was called people into church by being a missionary for the church and helping starting church, churches, things like that. But both of those things were, he was rejected by. The thing that he thought he was called to, the thing that he found his identity and his purpose in, the, way, the thing that he built his life around was now taken from him. And it is a white Dutch Reformed church building that finds its way into the center of Starry Night. At least that's what um, an artist and educator, Makoto Fujimura, says. Somebody who actually has studied a lot more art than myself. An imported replica of the structure which Van Gogh felt a deep calling towards, and yet could not, by circumstances, and if we're honest, by grace, could not be the center of his vocation, the thing for which he was made. He thought he was made for church. And by circumstances and by grace, he found out that he wasn't. Besides lacking the quintessential lifelines, is there anything else that distinguishes the church from other buildings? Do you notice anything else that makes a church stand out as different? What? It's white. That's a part of it. Yeah, that's good. What? No lights. That's right. Light. Most of the homes, there are a couple down at the bottom that may or may not have lights on, or maybe at least in one windows are out. But most of the homes have lights shining from within. While the church building is darkened, what do you think that could represent? Again, knowing what you know about Van Gogh, and that this church isn't just a depiction of what he sees in real life, physical life, but is a depiction of something that he's experienced and seen in real life in a different way, what do you think that might represent? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's right. Maybe the absence of movement and life in the building, some might argue, is a critique of the structures of the church. Right? 
Some might be a little more cynical and say that, the, like myself included, um, might say like, ha here's Van Gogh. He's saying, there's no life in the church. The lights have gone out, right? I mean, Van Gogh's experience with the institution would lead him to such a, pr- a perspective, right? It would give him plenty of opportunity, like a lot of us have maybe had, to say, no, life is not in this, and let me depict and show you how life is not in this. And maybe that's true. Maybe there's a piece of that that's accurate. But as Holly said, I think Van Gogh wants us to see a distinction. But I think he is trying to lead us to awe and wonder and not cynicism. To see that there's something outside of the church that's always been outside of the church. And I think this because this is what Van Gogh says. He said, I think sometimes I see something deeper, more infinite, more eternal, than the ocean in the expression of the eyes of a little baby when it wakes in the morning. I look at people. You think about all the, the paintings of, of Van Gogh. He always draws people with what seems like a halo, right? There seems to be some sort of glow in them. He sees something, even in the most common faces of life. He says, I see something deeper, more infinite, more internal, in everything, including the eyes of a little baby when it wakes in the morning. All nature seems to speak this same thing. I don't understand why everyone doesn't see and feel it. Nature or God does it for everyone who has eyes and ears and a heart to understand. I don't think Van Gogh's desire was just to critique the form of church, the structure of church. I think his desire was to help us to see, to hear, to feel and understand something more. Just like all the prophets. And the prophets have always been. Perhaps what Van Gogh, the prophetic painter, is trying to help us visualize is that life, the life that Jesus brings us into, the light, the living light found outside the structure that dominated Van Gogh's and many of our thoughts. Perhaps what he wants us to see is that there's life, so much more life all around us. So maybe his critique is similar to many others today who claim that church is life and lifeless. But perhaps that's, his critique is really that the centering structure is not the life. Not where we see the light and life and where our attention and schedules should fix their gaze. Because Van Gogh still painted the church in the middle of life, right? It was still there. But it was there so that we could see that life was happening, light was happening on the outside of it. The church is doing its job in the painting, right? It's bridging heaven and earth. That's what the steeple does. It points us towards it. It's still pointing us into the heavens, back into the life that we're called to, right? But it's dwarfed a little bit, isn't it? Are there any other vertical objects in the painting? There's no other vertical objects? Yeah, the cypress trees, right? The little wavy weird things in the front, right? The cypress tree on the left. Unlike the church structure, the cypress trees are the first thing we see in perspective, in the perspective of the painting. It's the closest thing to us. Like if you were looking at the village on top of a little hill and overlooking it, the church may be a mile down at the bottom. But the cypress trees are going to be about 10 feet in front of you. That's the, way, that's the perspective that the, the, the painting is made from, right? They're the closest in perspective. You can't miss it. And yet, as massive as they are, in contrast to the next largest object, which is the church, the church building, when in truth they could not outstretch the steeple, a cypress tree is never going to grow taller than the steeple, yet the way Van Gogh presents it 
is that the tree becomes the thing that actually reaches into the heavens, right? And the steeple is the thing that points us there, but doesn't quite get us there yet. While the tree takes us into the heavens, is this kind of large thing. It doesn't dominate. It points. It draws our attention to the star. It allows us to see, look, even like the very beginnings of that little tree underneath the tall one just begins to kind of touch the star. It draws us into the star, into the flowing swirls of heavenly wind, leaving our attention where our attention should be, on the moon, on the sun moon. Van Gogh may not have been a pastor, but he never missed the symbols depicting the truth of life and God's actions. So you'll go out in joy, remember, says Isaiah, and you'll be led into a whole and complete life. No thistle, no more thistles, but evergreen cypress. No more thorn bushes, but fragrant myrtle. And what are the thorn, what are the cypress and the myrtle? Monuments to me. Living, God, living and lasting evidence of God. What are the monuments to God? Is it the structure? Or is it the people whose lives are planted in his life? Who grow together. There's multiple, mur- multiple cypress trees in the picture. Into a life that images, that draws us and others into life with God. Van Gogh knew, as the prophet Isaiah declared, that the cypress tree are, 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 is our lives going out in joy, led into wholeness and completeness. Not the structure of a church building that was the monument to God, the living and lasting evidence of God for us and with us, that now is the time to seek and to find the God who is compassionate. Because that, that, that what the cypress trees shout out and draw us into, that now, look, here's what's happening all around you. Come and find the God who is compassionate. Turn and return to the God who abundantly pardons. A life made possible as the prophet Isaiah proclaimed in these words, in Isaiah 30 that when the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, when the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people, when we see a sun-like moon, it's because it's happening in the day when God binds up what is broken. A day that when we follow your teacher, saying, this is the way, walk in it. Maybe it feels strange to have an observation of art as a part of a sermon. That's fair enough, right? But isn't Van Gogh's painted parable depicting what Jesus has been inviting us into these last seven plus months? In Sabbath and work, in the 10 foundational words, in life moving from simplicity into flourishing? Isn't isn't Van Gogh picturing the way our teacher is telling us to walk in, to live in the life light? To orient our lives around the centers of what we think we are called to, but in awareness, understanding that what we're called to is more granular and more grander, that maybe, just maybe, Van Gogh is calling us, like Isaiah, to live off-center in the evergreen life he has given us, individually and together, to be built up into the fullness of Christ through and with one another, so that all the earth, Starting with the earth we walk atop each day is, like Van Gogh's painting, portraying a glowing glory of graciousness and majesty to our God. What if we could see the world of Isaiah like the world that Van Gogh sees? What if we saw that what Van Gogh sees is actually the same world that 
Isaiah saw. A life that we get to walk into each and every day. Not just when we come into a place like this, but as Van Gogh says, when we step out of a place like this. Think of what we in the world would have missed out on. Just think about this. What would the world and we missed out on if Van Gogh's center had been the structure of the church, which he knew, and not the life of Christ lived in camaraderie with the miners whom he ministered, not a life that ultimately was 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 found in the art that he was that that came from him, which was really the true manifestation, even if too briefly, of his true child of God's self. What would we have missed out on if Van Gogh just stayed in the building? What would we not be able to see around us if we just stay in the building? Like Van Gogh, the structure finds its way into our vision of life with God and others no matter what, right? Like Van Gogh, we can't escape our little white steepled churches in some sort of way. It's always there, and that's not always a bad thing. But as Van Gogh portrays, the life light is not within the structure, but all around. Not in the center, but off-center. Again, the church is a centering component, at least from, from, the, from the ground level, right? And yet, it's the one place which life doesn't reverberate from. And so, Van Gogh's telling us life happens everywhere, again, outside of here. It's the same truth for us even here as Christ City, right? Like, we love what we do on Sundays, but, but if, it, if it just terminates here and we just walk out, in 45 minutes, these lights will be off. But the light doesn't go away. The life doesn't stop being lived. What we get to see and experience and feel, maybe in moments briefly here, is nothing compared to the wonder of what we walk out into. So how do we, who have given ourselves to following Jesus together, who, who, who desire to find the answer to the question that our scriptures are, are answering, um, how do we stay in this life light? How do we continue in this way of living into all that we are meant to be, sharing in God's glory and, de- and declaring it in the way that we live and who we are? How do we, who follow Jesus' life together, stay in perspective where the off-center cypress tree is as witnesses and manifestations of God's life in us? Letting that be the primary image that draws us and others into the life light of Jesus so that we too might follow the Spirit to the glory of our Father. How do we do that? That's the conversation for next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. The grace that comes at times through pulling us out of the thing that we think is the most important thing. The thing that we think is the most valuable thing. Because in truth, in some parts, Father, Lord, it has meant so much to us. It means so much to us. And yet, Father, it's in your grace in drawing us out of our little boxes and buildings, our little rhythms and formulas, that we get to not just, 
as we sang earlier, know you, but to be in all of you. That we get to actually be who you've made us to be. And so I thank you for brothers and sisters who long not to long not to build something to your glory. But as Paul said, who long to be built up into the fullness of your glory in Christ. So help us, Father. Give us a vision, a vision of life in you that allows us to see all of your life around us. Thank you for your grace in your son's name. Amen. So just for a second, as we often do, we're just going to take a minute to reflect, to have a quiet moment to consider. As Paul says in Romans, for from him, him being Jesus, and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Paul says that's our reality, right? That's what we live in. So what strikes you about Isaiah's vision? And then goes prophetic visions of life with God. Just for a minute, consider that. And then um, Chaz will start playing, and when he does, you can come up and grab your communion elements.